You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. It is amazing, an amazing thing the way God works and the way he uses things that we would never choose ourselves for our benefit and he uses us for, for our benefit and how the things we would choose actually would have been for our harm. So it's an amazing thing. And one of the other things that are amazing is the foolishness of preaching that God uses to... Uh, <laughs> but when you think about it, someone's standing up here talking about the word of God that most of the world doesn't want to know about let alone mm. read or respect or anything else, and telling you this is what God's saying to you and saying about you and saying about himself and all these sorts of things, it's foolishness. It, is. it really is foolishness. Yeah. And yet God uses that. Yeah. He uses it to change lives, to change hearts, to build faith and strength mm. in people. Mm. And we prayed before the church this morning, in a prayer meeting, we prayed for the believers around the world that are being persecuted that God would give them strength, that they could stand up and say, no matter what you do to me, Christ and Christ alone, and I will not bow the knee to anyone other. Foolishness. But what awesome foolishness. What an awesome God, hey? Father, thank you for this man, for this brother, for his family. Thank you for the friendship we have, as well as the blood ties because of the work that Christ has done, shedding his blood on the cross. We pray, Lord, now that with the foolishness of preaching, that you will speak to us. Speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. We open our hearts and our minds to hear you speak through Dave this morning. And uh, we look forward to what you've got for him to share and the work he will do through him, through his words and through your word, primarily, because your word is the one that has power in these coming weeks. So Lord, would you uh, just use his mouth this morning for our benefit and our strength. Amen. 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 Thanks, Ed. I'll try and be as foolish as possible. <laughs> um, this morning, I, I've, I want to speak to you about something which uh, I've, I've had bubbling away in the back of my mind, sort of bouncing around in my mind. There's a lot of space in there to bounce around in. So it's been there for a number of years, but never really formulated until about three months ago. I was having a coffee with a mate of mine, and it, the, the conversation we had just triggered all these things and so I went home and I, I just had all these, these ideas and I jotted them all down and by the time I'd finished I thought next time I'm at City Edge I'm going to speak on this and, uh, and so I knew I was ready before which is just as well as it turned out because I've had a pretty manic couple of weeks where I've had just about every distraction away from, from um, preparing for today so it was pretty much ready to go which is which is really exciting. And it's a very timely thing, I think, because we're coming to the end of a decade, so it's, it's sort of like a, um, a message, and I, think it's, I believe it's a word from God um, going into the next decade. And we're, we're about to launch in. There's a, a, a lot of strange things going on in the world, aren't there? Um, politically and from a business point of view, from, a, um, you know, from the kind of philosophies emerging and things like that. And so we're at a very interesting time. So how do we process this? How do we um, go forward? What, what should our focus be and what, um, what's really important in going forward? So what I want to do is I want to give you a sort of a how-to lesson. Are we ready to go with that? We're up. Turn it on. Oh, that's the bit I always forget. I'm on. There we go. How to live 
an enthusiastic life. <laughs> so that's what I want to talk about today. And enthusiasm is about, is, a, is about energy, isn't it? About what we put our energies to. And we all have a certain amount of energy and we, could, we only have so much physical and emotional energy and we're going to put it towards something um, one way or another. So who, who wants to live an enthusiastic life? Yeah? Anyone want to live a complacent life? No? 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 no. Okay, okay, we're on good ground. <laughs> All right, so <clears throat> what I want to start with, I want to look back um, over Western society um, in the last 70 years or so since the Second World War and I want to look at it decade, decade by decade and I want to give a very, very brief summary of each decade. This isn't definitive, it's a, it's a very broad generalisation. The great thing with the generalisation is you're not accountable for it because you can just say, well, it's just a generalisation. <laughs> um, and, you know, don't hold me to account for something like that. So, um, so what I want to look at is um, I want to start with the 1950s and... Can you guys see that okay? Yeah, better than I can. That's good. That's good. Um, so the 1950s, very broadly, was, about, it was a decade of nation building. They come out of the war and all the mayhem from that, and they said, okay, what do we want to be as a nation? The United Nations had just formed in the late 40s. And um, <clears throat> Western nations were starting to say, okay, what do we want to become? And they were building a nation, and they put their energies, their enthusiasm towards building um, their respective nations and our respect, our, our nation as well. The 1960s, once things were established, was very broadly about, well, um, are the foundations that we built our society on, are they really helpful? Are they holding us back from a, a liberation that we could, we could explore? There's a whole new world we could explore and we could start to let loose some of the foundations. Um, little did they realise the devastating impact it would have and is still having um, 50, 60 years later, um, some of the things that were let go. And yet there was some good that came out of the 60s um, and some of the, the thinking that was broken free from. So it was a bit of a mixed bag. So people were, were energised by um, the prospect and the, the idea of liberation from, um, from social mores, etc. The 1970s, I would um, categorise as being about experimentation. They say of the 1960s, that um, uh, if, you were, um, if you remember the 1960s, then you weren't there. I think it's probably more true of the 1970s because as people started to push the boundaries, you got into the punk era and experimentation with drugs and all kinds of weird stuff that went on in the 70s. You even just see that in the fashion, um, <laughs> don't you? But, but, uh, but there was a, a decade where it was sort of pushing the edges of things to see how far can we take this. And in some ways, it, it had devastating consequences and it, it resulted in things um, like the AIDS crisis in the 80s that ha um, had its birth in the 70s in reality. And it's quite a, 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 a sick um, uh, sort of origin of the whole AIDS um, problem that, that uh, emerged later on. In the 1980s, it was the greed is good um, decade for those of you who remember that. I was um, in my teens um, in the 80s and it was the decade of materialism. Suddenly um, things started really shifting. Up until that time, people seemed, uh, from my, my perspective, I didn't live through all of these decades, by the way, <laughs> just in case you're wondering, but um, this is just my take on them. But people started to... Um, look at um, 
uh, the idea that there was all kinds of opportunities with world markets opening up and the changing legislation that made it a lot easier to, to earn significant money. Most people before that was, were more satisfied with more of a subsistence lifestyle. And the, the, de- the 80s was the decade where people started to become really aspirational and it really was greed is good and, and very open, opulent uh, displays of affluence were, were the order of the day at the time. Until 1987 and the stock market crash in October 87, which brought everything back to earth and made us think, well, hang on, this isn't quite as, uh, as, um, as stable as we thought it was. But this was what energised people. This is what people were enthusiastic about in the 1980s. In the 90s, a sort of a weird complacency fell in. Although technology really advanced quite dramatically, there was, we were, it's like we were sort of living off the fat of the land in a way in the 90s. It was a funny decade that's very hard to define, I think. Um, but there was a sort of, you know, we've got things good, money's much easier to make, we've got more materialist, uh, material possessions and things like that. And there was this sort of strange, it was almost like a, almost like a new age complacency that, uh, and that we weren't really enthusiastic, as far as I can recall, about anything. Um, and then in the, uh, the noughties, <laughs> we had what I've called terrorism. It's not the age, I'm not talking about the age of terror and I'm not talking about terrorism itself. I'm talking about what I would call the industry of terrorism where um, terror became something that was used as a political tool, um, as an emotional tool to control people and things like that. There's all kinds of politics, there's all kinds of um, marketing that took place um, to, to get people to say this, this fear, whether it was real or perceived, this, this fear of terror and a fear that we're under threat and we have to be careful, we have to distrust people, be alert, not alarmed and all that kind of thing. And, and it, became, it was a very polarising decade, um, probably summed up by what George Bush said when he said, um, he described it, he, he, did, he said that um, if you are not for us, you're against us. Do you remember that? Some of you remember him saying that. It almost summed up that decade. So you, you have to be in one camp or the, or the other. You can't be a neutral bystander. And people put a lot of energy into instilling fear or using fear as a tool to control people. Very different to what John Howard said in 1996 when he, when he won the election was, we want a, an Australia that's at ease with itself. So some of you older ones <laughs> who might, might remember that. He was talking about, oh, it's all about ease, it's all about comfort. Suddenly it was about either you're with us or, or you're against us. Very different energies taking place, weren't there? And then I've described, I don't know what we call this decade that we're coming to the end of, maybe the tenties or something. <laughs> I don't know if we've really had a, had a name for it. But there's a new milit- what I call a militantism. I've made up a couple of words here, sort of, <laughs> but it is actually a word. <laughs> militantism is just a very obscure one. But what I mean by that is people have become very aggressive about their cause. It started off early in the decade with, people, with militant atheism. Do you remember um, people like um, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, uh, Christopher Hitchens, um, um, Peter Singer... Uh, Lawrence Krauss, people like that, you may, some of these names may be familiar, where it wasn't enough for you to believe in God and someone else not to believe in God, but there was this aggressive, militant push against belief in God and a, and a derision towards anyone who believed in God and saying, you're anti, um, rational, you're anti-science and all this kind of stuff. And, they, and, 
And it sort of set, it laid the ground, I think, for the kind of militantism we've seen over the last 10 years. And everyone who has a cause, it seems, has to be extremely militant about it, whether it's gay marriage or whether it's climate change or um, extreme left-wing politics. Um, you know, it's, it seems like everyone, every, it, we can't just discuss things now. You have, to, you have to rise up. You have to protest. You have to be almost anarchic about it, don't you? And, um, you know, and elections now, we have de- the irony of having a democratic election and then thousands, even millions of people protesting against the election result or a referendum or something like that. And people, you, they, the people aren't content now just to say, okay, well, it is what it is, but they have to rise up. They have to be militant about it. And, and it's quite a disturbing trend, isn't it? This is what people are putting their energies to. Um, we had the irony just um, well, twice in the last six months. We've had school kids coming out of school in Port Macquarie, which has, the, uh, has um, Australia's, uh, supposed to have Australia's best climate coming out on a beautiful, idyllic morning, you know, low 20s, sun shining, it's just the, the weather couldn't be better, with banners talking about the climate emergency. And the irony is just delicious. <laughs> and, and I laugh, I walked past them, I just laughed. I went, <laughs> what climate emergency? <laughs> you know? And they're just there in their shorts and their, their T-shirts and um, enjoying the sunshine, telling, telling us how terrible the climate was. But the, just the irony and the, the, the nonsensical nature of a lot of militantism which, uh, that we see around us. And so I think that's a fairly, um, a fairly reasonable sort of broad sweep, isn't it, of the last 70 years. So we're coming to the end of, uh, of our beloved tenties or teenties or whatever you want to call us and we're heading into the twenties. What, what are we going to be enthused by? What are we going to be energised by in the, uh, in the next decade? And I think to, to uh, look at that, I'd like to um, look at the word itself. And what does the word enthusiasm actually mean? And because I think if we, look, if we go back to the word itself, that'll give us the clue that will help us to process where do we put our energies in the next 10 years. You know I like my definitions. I like to have a good definition so we know exactly what we're talking about. The definition of enthusiasm is this. It's originally a Latin word, which was first used um, in France in the 17th century. It comes from the word on, which means in or possessed by, theos, that is God. So it was actually, it was coined in the 17th century by, um, in France as a derogatory term. You're going to love this. It was, it was, term, it was, it was um, first used as a derogatory term to describe Christians who spoke in tongues and, and worshipped energetically. <laughs> yeah, and that, it was actually a term of contempt for <laughs> directed at Christians. You're on theos. <laughs> and and they, they almost spat it out to Christians who were, who were energetic. I was in England with my, um, I, was, uh, I was about 15 or 20 years ago and I took my mum to a stately home. We used to like looking around stately homes, we dreamed about owning one. Um, but um, often in these, these homes, that are on the grounds of the estate, there'll be a chapel, a beautiful old chapel, hundreds of years old normally, there's just, um, uh, they're just beautiful buildings. And often they would act as the, ch- the local church for the village nearby and people would come to the chapel on the estate 
um, then that would be where they'd meet on a Sunday. And we were walking through the chapel and um, my mum started laughing and drew my attention to this plaque on the wall and it was a plaque in memory of a woman who'd lived in the early 18th century. This is in the south of England. She'd um, lived in the early 18th century. It was describing this woman. She had a number of kids. She had about eight or nine kids, I, I seem to remember. And this woman was regarded as as a pillar of the community. She was always helping other people. She was a wonderful mother. She, she served the church um, and she was, um, she was very supportive of the, the, um, the lord or lady of the manor who, uh, um, that the, this church was on the grounds of. And then it finished this plaque by saying that she was happily free from enthusiasm. <laughs> and my mum, knowing Latin very well, and I just stood in front of this thing laughing, understanding <laughs> what the word meant, that she was happily free from enthusiasm. And just the irony of the whole, <laughs> whole thing. <laughs> and so, uh, and this is, that's the origins of the word, that, that enthusiasm was looked down on. But now people have developed a form of enthusiasm and energy in their life that is free from God. No wonder that what I listed there only lasts a decade because I go, this doesn't work because there's nothing sitting behind it. And uh, what they're missing is the theos in enthusiasm. So what we could define um, enthusiasm is as being energised by God or, if you like, being powered by God. That's the, that's the root of what enthusiasm is. Is that something that you... You like the sound of a bit more? It was really interesting just before we, um, we, we started this morning and we were praying in the other room and Mark was praying, Lord, I pray that we, we will know something of your power this morning. You were praying along those lines, weren't you? That um, we would know something, we'd learn something of your power this morning. So really what I'm talking about this morning is about the power of God. <laughs> That's actually, the, the you could, could call that the title of what I'm going to talk about this morning is looking at the word enthusiasm, which is actually being powered by God. And so I want to have a look at the power of God and how that works in our lives today. That's the purpose of what I want to do. I want to start off by looking at, looking at the, the question um, from a philosophical point of view. And some of you will be familiar um, with me, I've spoken about this before. If you don't remember, then you obviously weren't listening and I need to tell you again, okay? <laughs> so I want to look at philo- philosophical dilemmas, three big philosophical dilemmas that philosophers have faced for over the centuries, right back from Greek times, the, Greek, the great Greek philosophers. And the three questions are about life. What is life? We know if someone's alive or not, but we don't know what life even consists of. We, we, it, it's more than just the physical faculties of our body just working um, and, the, and the energy that courses through our body, although there's a lot we don't know about that, but things like consciousness, memory, all kinds of things like that. What actually is life? And even more importantly, where does life come from? How does life originate? Because it's far more than just the, the physical um, movements and the, the, the pumping of the heart, etc., so these are things that, that um, even today, philosophers, they just cannot get their head around exactly what, what it is. The second one, particularly, that we're talking about today is what is movement or what is energy? We know what energy does, but no one really knows what energy is. Is it physical or non-physical? Because we talk about the things that energy, uh, the matter that energy operates in, but what actually is energy itself? 
And no one really knows what energy is, where it comes from, why it's there, why it's incredibly intricate but unspeakably powerful. How does, how does that incredible balance, to, um, uh, how, how does it work in that way? How is it so elegant? And where does the energy or the power that energises the universe, where does that come from? I'll talk about that in a moment. And the third thing is being. What, is it, what does it mean to be? And what is being? And the fact that we exist, but we're, we're beings which are what are called contingent beings, we're dependent beings, we don't hold the power of being within ourselves, but then because of that there must be a being which actually it does hold within itself or himself, if you like, <laughs> um, the power of being. And these are the philosophical questions they just grapple with and grapple and just can't get their head around because they're saying, well, there can't be a God, but we, we exist. There's be, there is being, but there, and these are, I don't want to get into it in too, too much. It's just a fascinating subject. But these are the three questions that they ask. But if you leave God out of these three questions, then everything ultimately is absurd. It doesn't make any sense. And when Paul, was, um, when Paul visited uh, Athens, as recorded in Acts 17, he, he, ad- he addresses the philosophers of the day and he addresses these three questions. And I want to show you what he says in Acts. Can everyone see that okay? Yeah, it's just me. It's, it is quite little, isn't it? I'll read it to you. How about that? <laughs> the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far away from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, in one sentence, Paul has answered all, of, um, all three of the dilemmas that philosophers have grappled with. Is it, it, in him, if you take him out of it, then there's nothing left. And no wonder you're living in confusion. No wonder you can't answer the question because the answer to the question is in him. So he is the author the, the, um, and the sustainer of everything that is, including movement, as we're talking about, or energy. So he is the ultimate source. So philosophically, God has to be the source of, of all of the energy and all of the power in the universe. So let's have a look at it scientifically, just quickly. Laws of thermodynamics. Anyone familiar with these? Some of you will be, I'm sure. When we look at it more scientifically, it's a bit of a science lesson. We're going to the science lab now. There's actually four laws of thermodynamics. The zeroth law, there is actually a zeroth law, the first, second and third laws. I know, (laughs) I don't know, there's a scientist, what do you expect? (laughs) Um, The first two, the the first and second laws are the, the best known. First of all is this, the first law of thermodynamics, the amount of energy in the universe is constant. That is, energy cannot be created or destroyed. So in the natural scheme of things, energy isn't rising and falling. It can't be created, it can't be destroyed. It just shifts. That's that's what it does. That's what makes the universe work. And that begs the question, where did it come from? It's a pretty obvious question, isn't it? That it comes out of that. 
it, it must have been a supernatural event that brought it about it because natural events don't, bring it, don't generate energy. The second law is the amount of usable energy in the universe is constantly decreasing. In other words, it's a bit like a grandfather clock. You pull the things, however you do that, I don't know how to do that, but you pull the, the cords, it winds up the clock, or you wind up your watch, and it winds down it, as it disperses energy. They say everything tends to decay. A, a good example of this is that um, is if you have a, a, a room which is just an ambient temperature, sealed room, and you put a hot cup of coffee in the middle of it, that cup of coffee, the, the, the heat in that coffee will disperse throughout the room until it, everything reaches the same temperature. So energy is dispersed and once it reaches the same temperature they call that heat death. So everything tends to decay. It doesn't wind up, it winds down. That's the way, the, it's that movement and dispersal of energy is what makes everything work. So what's happening is we've got a constant amount of energy but it's, constant, it's becoming less and less available. It's winding down. So those two alone, uh, those, those two laws, which are two of the most established laws in all of science, in fact, you take that away, you pretty much junk science completely. It's, it, becomes, it becomes impossible to, to really uh, do anything else in science if you reject these two. But they are two very powerful arguments against any notion of atheism because if it's winding down, it must have been wound up. If, it's, if the amount of energy is constant, then who put it there in the first place? And it, it, Unless you say it's eternal, which itself is absurd. Um, and so what we're, what we're pointing at, and the point of my point in, in, uh, in talking about this, is to say the energy or the power in, in the universe has to have a transcendent cause. And that transcendent cause, by definition, is God. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? I'm not sort of going over your heads or teaching you to suck eggs or anything like that. So whichever way we look at it, the power that energises the universe is the transcendent being we know as God. Whatever else we believe about him, that's our source of power. So if we're going to be energised, if we're going to be enthused, then the source always has to come from God. And so we want to tap into the power of God. So I, I want to just look at it um, as I'm sort of winding this up. Um, I want to look at a few verses that tell us about the, the power of God and our relationship to it and our lives and how our lives are impacted by the power of God. I think you're going to like this. <laughs> okay, it is small, isn't it? I'll make it bigger next time. Okay, Romans 1. This is a direct statement relating to the the first and second laws of thermodynamics or the first in particular for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse there's no excuse for not understanding this it's plain as day and anyone who has any understanding of science or philosophy or any other discipline for that matter should understand that it's, it's just it's right in front of your face. And we're talking about God's eternal power, his divine power, his supernatural power, his transcendent power is clearly seen just by what we see around us and what's been made. Okay? So we're going to talk <coughs> about the power of God. And let's have a look at some of these verses. 
It's the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. So we can have security in our future that we know that whatever happens in our lives, the power of God, the energy of God, the enthusiasm of God, if that isn't sort of circular, <laughs> is um, his power will raise us and, and the, the work he has begun in us, he will bring to completion by his power. Secondly, his power works in us. I, and this is Ephesians chapter 1. Beautiful, beautiful passage. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. So the same power that wrote the brought Jesus back from the dead is the is power that works in you. Okay? So what we're talking about here is the power of God. See the linkages here, the, power, the, the same power that God had to create the universe he exerted in raising Jesus from the dead. The same power he used to raise Jesus from the dead, he also works in you. Yeah? That's a pretty sobering thought, isn't it? Yeah, if you don't feel confident after knowing that, <laughs> then, um, then we need to go on. <laughs> and I will. <laughs> the same, this same power empowers us. So if you're engaged in spiritual warfare, as I have been over the last couple of weeks with members of my family, <laughs> quite serious spiritual warfare too, the weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. You heard that before, a minute ago? They have divine power to demolish strongholds. So if you're in a fight, if you're in the fight of your life, if you're like Israel Folau, who says, I'm in the fight of my life, and people go, oh no, there's other people in other fights that are much more serious. No, he's in a spiritual battle. That's why he needs spiritual power and he needs courage and he needs power beyond himself to be able to overcome in that. And I applaud him for the stand he's taken over the last few few months. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Shamo. And so the power we have in spiritual warfare is divine power. And and um I've had uh, I've had a brutal battle with a couple of members of my family who've, whose behaviour has been absolutely disgraceful. And and um and knowing this that the power I fight with um is far greater than anything I possess myself. I've had to draw on that, but I've also known that I can have grace within that, that I don't have to retaliate, but I can actually um, act with dignity and respect while still fighting a spiritual battle. Because we have divine power. It's not, not natural power. This is the power that God used to create the universe that works through me. Yeah. It helps keep perspective, doesn't it? I love this one. I'll just go back a second. Okay. That power works in us. Okay, that's, that's great. That's worked in us certainly to save us. It empowers us in, in um, spiritual warfare when we're, we're faced with a fight. But what about all the rest of our lives? What about all the other stuff we do in our lives? Do you want to cover all for that? Yeah, how about this? His divine power, that word divine power again, the same power we're talking about, his divine power has given us everything we need 
for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. That pretty much covers it, doesn't it? It's not just general power or the power, our own power that we possess within ourselves. It's not just a little bit extra power, but his divine power, the same power he used to create the universe, the same power he exerted in raising Jesus from the dead, which he will also use in raising us when, when we go through our own death, the same power that we engage in, in um, spiritual warfare is exactly the same divine power that he, that he has given us that covers everything that enables us to live, in life, uh, live our lives and live a life of godliness. It's the same power. That, if that is the source of your enthusiasm, that's going to last a lot more than a decade, isn't it? That's going to sustain you through your life and beyond. That's the thing that has sustained Western civilization for as long as it's been around, isn't it, in reality? And if we abandon that and the push to, to reject it and push it out of the conversation, push it out of... The, the society we live in is a very dangerous game to play, isn't it? Yeah, Because we're, we're trying to generate false enthusiasm without the theos. <laughs> yeah? I don't know what that ends up with, but it's not a very pretty word. <laughs> en- enneasm. That's a new word for you today. I told you I'd give you a couple of new words. <laughs> so, let's look at probably the most well-known of the doxologies at the end of Jude. To him who is able, who has the power to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. That's a pretty good way to finish it off really, isn't it? So do you want to live your life on Theos, <laughs> do you want to live an enthusiastic life, then we need, probably more than any time in the last 70 years, we need to be tapping into the power of God that works in us and through us, his divine power, don't we? We need courage to stand up with people like Israel Folau and others who have taken a stand and said, I will not back down because my God is more powerful than anything that comes against me. And if we're having to engage in warfare at times, we need to know that we have a power beyond our own that we can, uh, that we can tap into and is available and works through us to powerfully bring about change. So who wants to live an enthusiastic life? Yeah, properly enthusiastic life <laughs> with the, tapping into the source of that enthusiasm. Yeah, great. Have a great decade. I'll see you again before it's over, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Hasn't even started yet. (laughs) Thanks, Ian. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.